but there are, are a number of moments or forks in that road that we're going to be faced with as a society where we're going to have to make, I guess what I would describe as non-economic, you know, non-capitalist decisions that are all in our collective benefit. And honestly, I don't understand the compass, the moral compass of the many managers that are in senior positions at these companies that aren't sitting down and saying, let's do the right thing and switch the systems. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Philip Rosedale, who is well known as the founding creator of Second Life and his subsequent work with VR and spatial audio company High Fidelity. Now, we were extremely lucky to catch Philip the day after a major announcement of his return to Second Life as an advisor after nearly a decade away from the company. This set the foundation for our conversation, which then took an incredible journey through myriad topics, including the pros and cons of virtual reality, of decentralization, of cryptocurrency and digital assets. We also get into issues around the attention economy, data privacy, advertising revenue models, and wealth disparity in both the physical and digital worlds. From a technical, economical, philosophical, and ethical point of view, we really managed to exploit a lot of subject matter here in just a short period of time from a lot of different perspectives. And so I'll honor that efficiency by wasting no more of your time on this intro. So everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Philip Rosedale. coming back on as an, as an advisor, I think, to Second Life, correct? Right. So what kind of sparked that? Can you tell us a little bit about what is going on there and uh, what we can expect to see? Uh, I mean, at a high level or backing up a little bit, we've been working for almost 10 years at High Fidelity on, you know, ba basically trying to build a whole new virtual world that was modern technology, more decentralized, um, open source, and most importantly, based on VR goggles, you know, headsets. And actually before COVID in about 2019, we sort of looked at the market information that was coming in and the successes and challenges we'd had getting our stuff up and running. And we concluded that um, the VR headsets were just not good enough yet for widespread use as a show, social medium, like what we're doing right now. And with that, you know, and once we were sure about that, we we realized that as a company, we weren't going to make it as a startup building, you know, a new virtual world on top of VR headsets. And so 2019, we started trying some new experiments where we said, well, what else can we do with the technology we've built? And the thing that we discovered in the couple of years after that was that we could take just the audio component that we had built, which was this crowd 3D audio technology that is just really cool, where you can hear everybody in a conversation, you know, around you, uh, you know, close your eyes and point at them, basically, makes it possible for multiple people to talk at one time, for example, which, you know, as we all know, is really hard in a Zoom call. So we identified audio as a business, we started selling it to people, most notably, we sold it to uh, Clubhouse, you know, the, the big social audio company. And uh, along the way, as we were doing that, we were, I was also thinking, what else can we do? We've got 
I, I personally am continuing to be passionate about virtual worlds and what happens with them. And then we had a re- an amazing team of people remaining that were more focused on kind of the metaverse side of things, you know, this, you know, VR technology. And so after really pondering it and looking at what was going on, we, you know, we made a few conclusions. One was that um, even though there's a ton of hype and has been a ton of hype, you know, in the last, you know, six months to a year, kind of all through COVID about virtual worlds and virtual reality and VR headsets and everything, we didn't really feel like, as we had thought in 2019, the numbers just weren't really shaping up. Like if you look at, you know, all the stuff that Facebook is doing right now in VR, it's, it's a rounding error, you know, compared to any of the games or Second Life or anything else. And, and in particular, we came back to Second Life and said, here is an experience that does continue to grow. It, it, it's stayed around for almost 20 years now. And it has embedded in it a lot of design decisions that I think are the right ones relative to safely building a metaverse type of an experience. And so, you know, all of that kind of came together and we started talking to the company about whether we could move some of our people and our patents and some of our cash um, over to Second Life. And so that's what we did. And we announced it uh, yesterday and it's been a lot of fun. And so is the hope to take Second Life in a virtual reality direction? Or do you think that in fact, Second Life is going to benefit more from its current medium as is with some new technology? Uh, No, not to take Second Life in the direction of VR headsets right now. We still feel like, and everybody I talk to agrees with this, you know, that we're still like five years away from a VR headset that's a general population, you know, usable thing. They've got to get a lot more comfortable. Um, They've got to not make people sick. And I think most importantly, VR headsets have to be something that's equally interesting to people, regardless of their gender or age or, uh, you know, demographic background. And it's just not true today. Um, I often say that, and I've had a lot of experience doing this, you know, putting on a VR headset, like an Oculus Quest is a little bit like blindfolding yourself in a room with other people, you know, and maybe even people you don't know. And the vulnerability that you have to express in doing something like that is pretty considerable. And so if you think about it, and we really thought about it a lot and saw this at high fidelity, the, t- the sort of person that's willing to put on a VR headset, you know, their, their, their background and their level of, you know, fear of people around them and stuff is, is very significant in, in, in its impact on their willingness to use a VR device. And so in short, I think until those problems get solved, the, the world of VR is going to be a, still a kind of a research and experimentation world that's largely populated by, uh, by men, for example, more than women and, you know, engineers. And I just don't think that it is the right basis for a society. It's, it's not the right level playing field for people to come into and interact with each other in the ways that I think we need to be, you know, as a, as a human society. Yeah. And that historically has been one of the biggest, uh, strong points about second life, right. Is the demographic because you guys had, have had a pretty varied demographic. It's been very hard to pin down who a second life user is. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the genders are balanced. It's about, you know, an equal number of men and women, um, Age is all over the place. You know, there are people that are at every age point, except no kids in Second Life. Um, you know, it's a grown-up experience. The uh, yeah, it's a, it's still it's still about sixty-five percent um, uh, international, non non-US, and so uh, the population of people mirrors basically that of the internet. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's wonderful. You know, there's things like translation tools in Second Life that allow you to speak in a different language to somebody. I mean, in text, it's just incredibly neat, you know, things. And it's still this very vibrant, uh, big uh, community. Yeah. Do you have any personal hopes or goals now that you're kind of uh, back involved with Second Life to anything you want to see happen that you've been thinking about maybe over the past several years? Well, you know, improving virtual worlds is a hard problem. I mean, part of my observations about, you know, all this enthusiasm and web, whether you're talking about web three or Facebook or whatever, you know, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm about building metaverses and about building virtual worlds, but you know, it's hard. And we really know that at second life, you know, we've really struggled to, uh, over the years to build something that is broadly appealing. The, the, the statement I make about it is that if you just went out on the street, you know, in a city and you just picked a random person and you brought them back into your office and you set them down and put the headphones on them or put a v- put VR goggles on them and put them into a social virtual environment, um, they wouldn't come back. Um, they wouldn't feel comfortable staying there. They would probably find it and in fact, you know, some of them are the same people that are engaging vigorously in the sort of philosophical debate about what it all means. You know, are we in a simulation, you know, when we're in a virtual world, <laughs> in the real world? So I think that, that, that there's a lot of excitement, but the average person still isn't comfortable doing something like going to a, a, a live music show um, as an avatar in a virtual world. And so we've got to continue to solve those problems. I think they're pretty difficult problems. You know, they're a little bit like, you know, lighter batteries for electric cars, right? We know that we're gonna figure out how to make them, but we don't yet know the actual technology that we're gonna use. And I I think it's kind of the same thing with, with virtual worlds. Like we know that we have to build a virtual world that is widely inclusive and interesting to people, but we don't even quite know exactly how we're going to do that. Now, if you ask me how I'm, you know, I'm an engineer by background and I absolutely love this stuff. So I can tell you a million things like maybe we'll figure out how to use cameras on our computers. Like we're using right now with zoom to better animate our faces and our avatars. That's an active R and D field that um, not just second life, but you know, other companies are working on as well. Um, you know, better audio is what we worked on at High Fidelity. And actually that is a, that's a big change agent. You know, if you go to a party in High Fidelity, it, it, it's remarkable. You really can. That's something that I would argue anybody who tries it will say, yep, that's good enough. I can use that. But, you know, bringing all these things together in a new kind of virtual world that we really all can jump into, like, you know, we're talking about right now in, in the media, uh, we're still a ways away from that, e- even without VR hardware. Yeah. Do you... Do you think that we are going to move rapidly in the direction of virtual reality when the technology gets there? Because I'm, I've been, you know, a, a techno optimist. I've written sci-fi. Felt like I was a transhumanist several times throughout my life, and really embraced these ideas. And I'm pretty consistently disappointed by VR. Like it's, it's not really been what I hoped it would be. And a lot of it actually is not the experience um, as a, as a form of entertainment per se but like it's the like you said the blindfolding it's the kind of like when i get together with friends we all want to put the vr headset on but then it's like we kind of lose the whole point that we're there together like we lose the whole point of being social i mean you just put it very well i mean i think escaping into a sensory experience that's delivered by a vr headset like playing a video game is really cool i mean it's definitely going to continue to grow you know the market's there there's a few million of these units sold now um 
I, I think it's interesting, but, but I agree with you. I think that's very different than the supposition that we can go into a virtual world and, you know, live our lives there. And I think we're absolutely not there. And, you know, maybe we'll never be there. Like, like personally, I wonder whether, especially with the broader conversation that we're having as a society about the earth, for example, and the fact that we live here and that we need to take care of it and we've not taken care of it. And we have to face that moment right now. Um, I think that there's a sort of a realness to worlds uh, of a certain character that make them, you know, worthy of our attention and our time. And I think it's a very complicated calculus and I don't think anything's got it right yet. But I mean, practically speaking, I suspect you'd probably agree as the technology grows, will we use it to have meetings or do things like what we're doing right now? Of course, because we can then do that without flying. And I think broadly, that is a huge force for change. Um, what we were already experimenting with it during COVID, right? We found that for one-on-one -on -one calls, for example, like we're doing, uh, Zoom is pretty good. I mean, it's not fun, like sitting six feet from somebody, but it's, it's okay. So I think for business interactions and for school, um, we will continue to evolve these technologies to a point where, you know, one does imagine taking a graduate course or something wholly in a virtual environment and, and having enough of a spatial kind of experience around it that it's memorable and it really works well and everything. But I think you're right. I mean, I think the question of whether it's our destiny to live as human beings in some transcendent way in virtual worlds, I too wonder whether that's true. I don't know. I think that if you'd asked me that when I was... 30 and we were building second life i would have said yes we're all going to live in the matrix and today i definitely have a much more uh balanced perspective on that i don't know why do you think that has shifted for you was it just the 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 wisdom of age or was there something technologically in the landscape that happened well, it was certainly the experience of trying all these different things and also high fidelity. You know, we spent a ton of time. We had over a hundred people uh, at our biggest and, and we've raised about $75 million to work on VR. And we really did a lot of work. Like we did eye tracking and we did haptics experiments and, you know, we, we played around with everything. And there is still this kind of unreal quality to virtual reality environments. And so the more I, it's almost like, you know, the more I pull on the thread or the more I go down that rabbit hole, the more interesting it gets. But the interesting is that it's hard and that, you know, that maybe there is some magic, not, you know, I don't mean magic like laws of physics, we don't know, but maybe there is some kind of emergent magic to being in a world where your actions have consequences and you can't put your hand through the wall. And, you know, if, if two people yell at each other, they really have to figure it out. You know, they can't just log off. I think there is a kind of a, a realness to that that is in it that is deeply embedded in our in our existence as humans. I think by I mean philosophically, it's a little bit similar to a topic that I'm sure you've explored here uh, many times, which is, you know, is our brain all that we are? You know, can we upload ourselves into the computers in that in that transcendent? You know, you know biggest idea, you know, can, can we, can we extract, uh, you know, a person out of their brain and put them in the computers? And I think that our bodies and embodiment and our connection to the world around us is really, we don't understand how complex those links are. And I think they have to all work. So another thing I would say is that when I was 30, I would have told you that I thought that, you know, this kind of 
extracting the mind of a person and letting them kind of wake up as an avatar in a virtual world was doable. Um, I think now it's more likely that it isn't, or at least that it's enormously harder than we're thinking. You know, it's not saying just, it's not enough to say we have computers fast enough to simulate the human brain. It's something more. We have to also build an environment in which we're embodied and which is, which is connected to us, you know, to our nervous system in a way that really works. Yeah. And does that make you lean more towards creating a balance in terms of how people use this technology? Because I think, for instance, about a lot of the big tech companies right now, and you have a lot of the creators who have now moved into positions where they don't want their kids using the technology they created. You have people like Tristan Harris who are stepping away from the companies and trying to say, I'm not happy with what I did before. I want to change things. You have social media acting as an attention economy that's very much based on ads and holding people kind of hostage in their systems. Like that's not really what we want out of second life, right? Right. And in fact, what is so curious about second life is that it, um, and this wasn't intentional. It's just what has happened. It kind of doesn't do by the fact that it's, but that it, 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 second life tries to be a true spatial environment, right? It doesn't have much in the way of messaging or, you know what I mean? You have no, you have no smartphone when you're in second life, you know, your avatar doesn't, you got to walk around, you know, you, you, you got to get close to people to be able to hear them. You can't just, you know, multitask and read their feeds. Um, so there's a kind of a realness already, even to something like second life that I think does suggest what you're saying, which is, yeah, we're not, we're not, designed to just take in an infinite amount of information from everyone in the world all the time. In fact, you know, as someone who came of age, began working in technology in 1994, at the beginning of the consumer internet, I think looking back now, the mistake that we all made was to think that more information was always better. I, I, I say that single sentence, and I think that it really captures everything. Like, I can remember we definitely in the late 90s felt like more information is always better. You know, everybody should have the option to know everything that's going on everywhere all the time. And we're going to use it. You know, we're going to consume a lot of that. And I think, you know, fast forward to now, and we've realized a couple of things. One is we have a finite ability to take in information. And sometimes it's overwhelming, even if it's not just sheer volume, it, it, it can just be too much. You know, the current rate of change as widely discussed in, you know, the very name singularity, you know, the, the current rate of change as we expected is very high, but that's not uniformly positive. It feels debilitating sometimes because we can't make predictions about what's going to happen next anymore very easily. And that's hard for human beings. And we have to accept that. Um, we do get overwhelmed with information. And then of course, what we've now realized is whether it's business model or um, malicious intent uh, a lot of the information can be incorrect or misleading or misguiding, you know, and that I, I just feel like we never thought about that in the nineties. We just thought, you know, publish everything, publish it all. So speaking of more information there and collecting more information, one thing I'm definitely interested in is kind of the information that you collect in second life. And there is a part of me that still kind of favors that, uh, the nineties version of the more information, the better but it's more about what you can do with it. And I'm wondering what kind of information do you collect with Second Life? And is there any intentions to do things like maybe 
offer up transparency that says, you know, hey, your character spends 90% of its time fishing. Did you ever think about the? Did you want to know that you're spending all your time fishing and maybe that's something like you love? Like all of this data about how somebody lives a second life could tell them about the life they really should be living in their real life. Does that make sense? does and i've thought about it i mean first of all just backing up second life as a baseline platform has made the decision which is i think you know one of the reasons why we are the closest thing to the good guys that you could have in this stuff um we don't collect anything other than what's legally required for us to provide for things like um like if there's a complaint that involves that requires an investigation of the chat records um or 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 tr uh, transaction activity that's happened we have only the minimum amount of look back in history that enables us to provide for to provide a service for that. You know, um, I there's probably a few things I'm not thinking of where you know we need to look at something like you know somebody's land purchase history or something like that so that we can provide a report for them. But we don't otherwise surveil um, people, and we don't keep information like where you've been. Um, I'm, I'm and again I I say this as an advisor today caveating it with, I'm not actually sure exactly what the company has been doing in the last 10 years with regard to this. So things like regulatory changes and compliance may have changed what we collect, but the spirit of it and the, the, the fact of it is that we decided very consciously not to collect that data because we felt that it might cause harm. Um, more more protecting, protecting people from each other I think in the beginning, we were never really thinking about, uh, because of course we started before the modern era of AI and, you know, behavioral kind of modification and surveillance and all this big data type stuff. We, we started before that, but at the outset, we didn't want there to be records that might be, um, that could be harmful to people. Like if our record keeping system had been hacked, um, if, if somebody could get into that, you know, could they get something about another person, which would be harmful to that other person? So we were very respectful of that. And so we kind of deleted everything as quickly as we could. Um, that said, to your point, um, moving forward, one could certainly build a plugin for Second Life, for example, for one's own avatar that collected all that data. And in fact, people have done that in the context of like science experiments and school, you know, academic uh, studies and things, you know, with permission. Or, you know, with collective intention, you know, people would do that. Um, so you can record everything about what your avatar does. And I agree with you. I think that like knowing exactly what your avatar is doing and then looking back on that would be an interesting source of information for, say, making predictions about what you like, which I think what you just said. I wonder, though, in this older version of me, again, whether that is what we want as people. I said something the other day to someone, which was, if we get better and better at telling you what kind of music you're going to like next, do you want to know? I mean, if you really like music and you like, say, going to live concerts and discovering that, isn't there a certain human limited imperfect delight in like happening onto a band that you really like? If I told you that I had this infinitely powerful computer that was looking at all of humanity's listening patterns and could just tell you, Stephen, your next song that you're going to like so much you can't even believe it is this song, do you really want to know? I mean, I think it's a complicated question, right? Sometimes yes, but I think sometimes no. I mean, yeah, we definitely are running into the issue now, I think with, you know, the feedback loop of recommendation engines, basically showing people exactly what they already know they're interested in. But that's what I think is kind of fascinating about the virtual world aspect is if you have 
you know, a free roam kind of open world landscape, you might find yourself doing things that you didn't expect that you would do that weren't recommended to you. You just had this urge to say like, hey, I really for some reason wanted to go into the Second Life casino or bowling alley or, you know, some other random thing. And like, wow, I spent 10 hours there unexpectedly. Do I really like bowling? (laughs) It's a bit like autocorrect, isn't it? I mean, maybe I'm old, but auto auto completing your sentences no i mean your life is moving forward in time and there's an uncertainty to what you're going to say next having a computer tell you what you probably would say next is i guess in some cases helpful or interesting but i think in a lot of cases it isn't i mean the whole lived experience of being human right is is being you know continuously changed by the information that's coming in and, and continuously generating new information that's kind of going out of you. And so I think this whole idea of, you know, having a Gmail or whatever, <laughs> finish the sentence you're writing. I, I don't get it. You know, yeah, that I, feels to me like a kind of a regression to a mean that we don't want to do. In fact, I, I, I could talk for hours about that, but this idea of, um, uh, this idea of what's often called prototype theory, which is that, you know, we, we store things in similar places in our brains. And so, uh, you know, our idea of a dog is stored in the same kind of cluster of neurons and, you know, that of a single person, as we've all heard and, uh, an abstract idea, smartphone, something like that. These are, these are, uh, clusters of memories that are stored together in such a way that we tend to keep a kind of an average recording of things, you know, and that's why we can all say something like, you know, imagine the best sunset you've ever seen. And we all imagine something. And um, that idea of this, this idea of prototype theory, it's, it's one of the things that drove in the earliest days of Second Life, I wondered, I had to figure out what should the default avatar or avatars look like? And in particular, there's this question, is there one face that is universally attractive to everyone. And honestly, when we started working on this in 1999, I didn't know, but I was very, you know, science-minded. And so I was like, well, what's the story with that? And then that's one of the things that led me to this prototype theory, which is that the average memory that we have of all the people we've ever seen is also the most beautiful person to us. And this has been tested in elaborate uh, science experiments now. It's fascinating that the, the average of all people you know, kind of the the average 3D shape of all the faces in a room or whatever is better looking as perceived by everybody else than any one person in the actual room. Wow. Fascinating. That's very interesting. And I, and I bring that up because, you know, kind of jumping another layer in the philosophy here, do we want to live in worlds that encourage us to kind of regress to that mean for all mm. our categories and all our symbols and all our dogs and cats and everything? And I think the answer there is definitely no. Um, there's a great danger in allowing us to sort of feedback loop these stereotypes. You know, what's the most, you know, attractive person or what's the most interesting version of something. And if we, if we all start converging on the same mean, uh, because we're, we're, we're looking at it in a virtual world or something, I think there's, again, there's, there's great danger in that. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of, I think what's going on right now, right. Is, you know, it's commonly called identity politics, but it's much more complex than, how it's kind of portrayed in the the culture wars, you know, that the idea of identity and how we're right. forming our identity based on, based on, you know, a constant standardization. I think that's happening because of globalization. And, you know, if you, if you know that looking a certain way gets you a million likes versus looking a certain way gets you 10 likes, 
everybody's going to do the million like version and then you have everyone looking the exact same way um and, and this is another transparent society observation right mm -hmm. like yes more information is generally good or is often good and transparency is often good but yeah like you just said if you are beginning to bias your behavior in the way that you statistically observe is better everybody's going to bias in the same direction and we're all going to become you know the borg or something yeah well and that's a really fascinating thing to bring us back to the virtual worlds is i believe you said in the very beginning you know one of the things that people love most about the idea of virtual worlds in general is the ability to reset their identity to create a brand new version of themselves how do you think that's evolved or is going to evolve um in you know as technology advances like what has the past 10 years looked like you know since you really were deep into that versus where you think we're going in terms of identity formation and if it's healthy or unhealthy and you know any kind of habits that we're forming it's a complex topic and i mean first i'd say i'm not sure but a few things have happened one is that people have gotten more comfortable with the idea of being an identity or an avatar separate from themselves and you know we've seen the idea of screen names and avatar pictures and actual 3d representations of ourselves as these versions of us become much more comfortable um not completely comfortable yet like i said earlier we're not ready to go to work as an avatar or as a cartoon drawn avatar yet but I do think that in gaming and in identifying with certain communities, right, we are comfortable kind of making an avatar. And I do think that's interesting. And I think it does open the door for doubtless, you know, some good things. Um, I think in the case where, you know, we asked a question at the beginning of Second Life that I think is still very correct today, which is, is your physical body the perfect representation of who you want to be or believe you are, right? And of course, as we've been more open to in society in the last few years, especially, of course not. I mean, we don't necessarily, we weren't necessarily given the physical body that feels right to us. And so in those cases, the opportunity to go and rebuild yourself as a whole person in another world, like, like people do in second life is very empowering. And there's little doubt that that's a, a service to, to humanity. Uh, but I still do think there are, that there are dark sides to that too. Um, I think that if we abandon our bodies and with them, we abandon our real communities and the world that we live in, we definitely do harm. Um, so there is a balance, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that there's always, you know, life exists at a balance between order and disorder, right? It's a, you know, it's a certain kind of, of temporary creation of order in an otherwise, you know, sea of chaos. And I, I think that some of the big discussion with uh, blockchain, for example, right now around centralized systems versus decentralized systems, it's the same thing. Completely centralized and completely decentralized are both uninteresting extremes where there is no life. Somewhere in between, there's a dynamical system that we could find interesting and useful. You know, taking the blockchain to the extreme of everything is a transaction and the first person who posts everything owns it forever, which is kind of the most decentralized view, that's not a stable society. We know that. It's been tested in history. We seem to have forgotten it now. But 
so you know the, the the final place that we're going to get to for example with crypto economies i believe is something quite different than what we're goofing around with right now you know we've just kind of turned on the spigot gone all the way to fully decentralized and said hey such a thing can be built but is that the right thing for us as a human society to use and you know in the case of crypto i think no not yet that's an an incredibly refreshing take to hear honestly cuz i I don't feel like it's common enough and it introduces a form of nuance that I think is really necessary when we look at technology. Do you think that mentality or that nuance is being considered in a lot of tech development right now? Because I'm not seeing it, I don't think, but I might not be as close as you. Well, it does seem like the development, and maybe this is true across bigger industrial areas than just say, you know, internet technology, but it seems like the first time you build something new, you know, it's a hammer and everything is a nail. You know, once you get it working, you're just like, man, you know, this is something we can use for everything. And I think that's where we are, like with blockchain right now, you know, it's the people that are working on it are just very enthusiastic and pumped and want to try to use it on everything. Um, but it does seem like in the end, you know, over time, you get a gradual process of synthesis and integration and experimentation that ends up with something that's, you know, generally more complicated and a blend of, of different techniques. But yeah, I'm with you. I mean, it feel, I, I find it tiring and frustrating right now that everybody just seems to either be like Bitcoin haters or Bitcoin maximalists, right? And I mean, it's just, it just feels really dumb to me. I mean, I think it, it takes only a few seconds to identify uh, multiple positions on either side that are certainly true. You know, can can Bitcoin uh, maybe destroy an authoritarian regime by giving people a different store of value? Sure, sure, sure. And is that a wonderful thing for us as a society? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's a tool we should have, you know, to lift ourselves out of a bad situation. But does that mean that Bitcoin is the way to do money? Absolutely not. For example, and this is something I've written about quite a lot, and others others have as well. Scientific American most recently, the, uh, the uh, a fixed money supply economy, all in and a free market, always results in runaway wealth inequality, where in the end you kind of like a poker tournament have only one winner. And so, you know, the out of the frying pan into the fire moment is that we've you know enthusiastically, as you're saying, like in that technical way where we've enthusiastically built these blockchains that basically swap that you know they take away the ability of the government to print money and give it to banks okay i get it you know that's got some problems but they switch it with a bunch of lucky early adopters that are somewhat randomly chosen with computers get all the money and then get to move it around however they like well when you do studies and simulations of what happens next with that you end up with one winner like a poker tournament so you end up with almost uh, perfect wealth inequality. There's a few things I want to touch on there, and I hope we get back to the inequality aspect. But to start with, if I remember correctly, there are patents uh, for some kind of decentralized tech that have been involved in your return to Second Life. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you touch on at all about the decentralized aspects? Yeah. Yeah, one of them, uh, one of the patents is a, a big a, a big patent that looks at the idea of building a virtual world by letting everybody share resources, sharing computing resources, and then using a kind of a tokenized economy to uh, trade those resources. That's one. 
But another one that's really interesting, uh, or the, uh, sorry, the, uh, another couple of the patents are related to reputation and essentially building reputation in a decentralized fashion. And this is something that I think is actually, hopefully, uh, whether it's myself or somebody else, hopefully things that we'll see getting uh, worked on soon. And, and we have seen a little bit of playing with it, but it's basically this idea of if I were using a completely decentralized system where I had digital signatures and nothing else, you know, this, I guess this would be something like, um, you know, peer-to-peer messaging basically uh, and digital signatures. Can I build a reputation system around that that can't be hacked, you know? And, and, and that opens up a whole big design discussion and there's no one right answer to that. But a couple of the patents that, uh, that we had written at High Fidelity are, are related to ideas around that that are, are things that we can directly do experiments on in the near term in virtual worlds and, may, and maybe even outside of virtual worlds. But, you know, the idea of uh, like one of the ideas is there's an ele- there's an aspect of crypto that is being widely used today. It's, it's a little bit like this thing called the zero knowledge proof in cryptography. There's an aspect of that where you could say um, somebody wants to make a negative report on somebody else's behavior. They want to say, hey, I didn't like what I just saw. But the problem with that, of course, is that if it's transparent, you have a, a risk of, of uh, a risk of retribution. Right. So um, one of the ideas is you can use the same cryptographic proofs that we use to to make a statement like someone in this uh, someone in this live music event made a negative report about someone else, but we don't know who the person was that made the report, but we do know that it was definitely someone that was there in that hour that the event was happening. So that's an example of a cryptographic technique that can be applied to building a, uh, a decentralized reputation graph. I, I think this question of like, what would happen if we woke up tomorrow and Facebook and LinkedIn and um, all, of our, uh, all of our social networks that maintained graphs between people were just gone? It's interesting you know, to kind of ask the science fiction-y question or, or the what if question of what would we build? Knowing what we know, right? Knowing that Facebook has 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 been a danger, or, you know, is is likely uh, very problematic, you know, in the combination of the social network and the business model. Um, if we know that, and and we built something entirely new that would just allow two people to walk up and make friends, you know, or or stay in contact or something, yeah, how would we do that in a safe way? What cryptography techniques would we use? And so that's an area that I'm really interested in. Yeah, that touched on something there that I can't help but. Uh mention why i'm pretty sure that facebook makes somewhere between like 30 to 100 dollars uh per user for advertising a year why are we not just paying five dollars and doing a subscription model and just getting rid of this insane amount of manipulation that's taking place let me put an even sharper point on that in agreeing with you yeah second life makes about the same between like 50 and 100 dollars a year per person there's no behavioral targeting. There's no advertisements. It's a subscription. And guess what? Here's the best part. The lowest cost tier is zero. It doesn't cost anything to use Second Life. So, you know, one fair rejoin, one fair retort to what you asked was somebody could say, well, but that would be uh, not inclusive because people that couldn't afford to use Facebook then wouldn't be able to use it. That's totally not true. You can absolutely have a zero price tier, charge subscription fees. In Second Life, the fees are for some transactions, have fees associated with them. So just like eBay, basically. 
And then when you own land in Second Life, you basically pay us a hosting fee, basically per acre of, of real estate. The Second Life's about the size of Los Angeles. So we make about $20 an acre a month in, in basically an unimproved property tax, you could think of it as. But those fees don't bias behavior. They don't invite people to become divisive or polarized. They don't attempt to get people to maximize their time in world because we don't make money on a per minute basis. So isn't it amazing that not only can you run a thing like Second Life, and of course you can do this with a social network, uh, at a really good return without uh, behavioral targeting, just using subscription fees. I'm the same way. I, I'm, I, I can't believe that as a society, we're not looking at this and saying, who's getting to work tomorrow on doing this? There's absolutely no reason to do it. And honestly, I don't understand the compass, the moral compass of the many managers that are in senior positions at these companies that aren't sitting down and saying, let's do the right thing and switch the systems. When it's not even pragmatic, you know, I mean, like having been in that world yourself, making those decisions, like, can you envision any reason why somebody isn't just saying, hey, uh, we could just get rid of all the bad publicity and make the same amount of money? Like, I, I don't understand why that's the, not in that conversation. The only defense I can make, but again, this is completely free of any ethical concerns, right? The only defense I can make is that in the case of behavioral targeting, surveillance, targeting suggestions like YouTube. I mean, like, look, look at YouTube. It's grown 100% entirely by, and as you said, Tristan and Aza uh, ex explain this in The Social Dilemma. You know, YouTube has grown the number of views of videos by about 100% in the last, whatever, 10 years or less by using AI suggestions that are totally polarizing and damaging to the world. So I guess what the only thing I could say, I guess if you said, you know, play, play the role of somebody at, uh, at Google or at YouTube would be to say, well, we make twice as much money per person now as we did five years ago. And you know what our investors would say if we told them we were gonna cut our revenues in half by turning off that suggestions pain. I, but I can, I can say, yes, you'll make less money, but you'll still make good money and you'll save the world. Yeah, it made <laughs> you me go sleep think better about at it. night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How can you sleep at night, right? Yeah. So that touches on a good, uh, a very interesting topic that I think is really front of mind for a lot of people right now is definitely virtual assets, you know, especially with things like yeah. NFT, with cryptocurrency, but specifically, as you mentioned, with things like real estate and Second Life. What do you think is happening in this medium? You know, a lot of people would argue, I guess, uh, you know, why spend so much money on a digital asset that has no real world tangible value? Obviously, we're moving in that direction. So there's some value. But what is that? What does that whole thing look like for you with the crypto NFT virtual real estate market? So first of all, just from a data perspective, as you as you know, um, almost every transaction in Second Life is for an NFT. It's mm -hmm. it's what's called in Second Life when we started it, it was this thing called copy modify transfer, and the idea was that every building block, every Lego block in Second Life, has written into its metadata its creator, its current owner. And a set of conditions which are you can't change, which relate to if you want to buy it from that person 
what is its price? So we worked very hard at the beginning to build what we, we actually called alienable digital assets, meaning that they can be transferred freely from one person to another. And that is that, that, that very same core idea that's, that's behind the NFT is at the heart of what allowed Second Life to be this creative, uh, you know, wonderland and what creates jobs for thousands of people who, you know, have their full-time livings, making things and selling them in Second Life. And by the way, that's with no speculation attached to it. You know, there's no, you never buy anything in Second Life because you think it's going to go to the moon. Um, there, that, there's lots of reasons why that's not true, but what's so fascinating is Second Life gets down to the, you know, when the tulip bulb craze is over, Second Life is a look at the utility of, of, of that type of NFT, of, of a digital asset, and the utility is very high. By the way, the utility is really in the secondary sale, and I think this is something that we're all a little confused by right now watching all the NFT like art stuff that's happening. It's not that you can sell something on OpenSea as an artist and be paid for it. You could have done that on a website. I mean, you could email people a photograph like people have laughingly said, right? You could you could physically mail somebody a canvas with your art on it. The difference is if you do it as an NFT or if you do it in a digital world like Second Life, you can provide proof positive that the, that the downs that that if you want to sell it to somebody else, that you definitely purchased the original from the original artist. So it's kind of like going to a garage sale and finding a painting. You would never assume that a painting that you found at a garage sale might be a Monet or something, because it's almost certainly going to be like a copy or misrepresented, or it's not going to have its provenance, as they say in art, associated with it. So the value of digital assets is that it makes extremely easy the proof for something in a secondary or a third or fourth sale. And so I think that's really interesting. What we're going to be left with when all the hoopla dies down around NFTs is some amount of legitimately interesting digital art, for example, that can now be resold. So I can say, hey, that thing on my wall, that's from so-and-so, you know, you know, Banksy, this, you know, famous artist, do you want to buy it from me? And you could actually buy it. And that's, that's really cool. And, it, and if you think about all the mechanics of the blockchain and stuff, it, you don't need all the ecological waste and all that stuff, but you you do need a ledger that is certain because otherwise somebody unscrupulous could put, you know, two copies of the same thing on eBay, right? And sell them both at about the same time and, and make off with one of the person's money. And so it's, it's this idea of a secondary sale that I think drives the real value of MNFTs. But anyway, 350 million transactions a year uh, or like a million, you know, a million a day. Uh, at a value of about $2 a piece is proof that that works, which is the engine that is Second Life. Wow. And it doesn't have to be done with a blockchain that consumes you know, the amount of energy of Argentina. Um, are you interested then in any way, shape or form of a future integration between the creative economy that exists in Second Life and the potential that we are seeing with NFTs and maybe even things like uh, DAOs and more decentralized currencies? I think the sequence of events is that first of all, we have to have virtual worlds connected together in which you and I would enjoy having this conversation as we touched on earlier. Once that happens, which I think will happen, once that happens, then yes, it becomes interesting for me to be wearing a hat, you know, and you see my hat on my avatar and you say, that is so cool. And I say, Hey, do you want mine? Or, uh, I'll give you this original one. It's cool. You know? 
Um, I think that that does come, but it's kind of a chicken and egg thing where, and I've said this a lot lately, that's not going to happen on top of video games. There's no interest in moving content because between video games because video games are a holistic experience that takes you out of the world to somewhere else. And you you look at all this amazing, you know, creativity or art that's going on in that game. You don't want to, you know, drive a Ferrari from Grand Theft Auto into Among Us. It doesn't make any sense. So I think, you know, I, I've said, you know, it's 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 a thing that only Ferrari could love, right? Like it, it's a it's an experience only a brand could love, but it's not actually a viable experience yet because we don't have these open social environments. But as we start to get, you know, say something like, let's say you had something like VR chat, I'll use an explicit example. You know, VR chat is a fascinating uh, open-ended virtual world that is of about the same scale as Second Life now and uses VR goggles. It, I can very much imagine portable content being able to move between Second Life and VR chat. I think that would be fantastic. And I think that the mechanisms to do that are perhaps not dissimilar to what we've got with like NFTs today. I think that again, in that, you know, going back to the moral compass, I think that as, as leaders, we, we do have to be very cautious not to use systems that are, um, that are explicitly requiring these, you know, this energy consumption problem of the, you know, layer one, you know, backbone blockchains. I think we, I, I think I, you know, I'm not the only decider in something like this, but I think that I wouldn't be uh, very supportive of something that was, you know, allowing content to move between Second Life and VR Chat, but you know, did it using you know one of the you know layer one, layer zero blockchains in such a way that you know we were having this massive ecological impact for doing it. Sure. And what about the inequality that you mentioned earlier? Do you worry about things like the crossover of uh, you know the wealthy just controlling? The virtual worlds like they do in the real world you know for a lot of people moving into second life is a chance to start over is a chance to escape what is arguably some very clear greed and oppression that takes place that steals a lot of uh autonomy and financial energy and freedom from people in their real lives so they look to something like second life where they have this chance to kind of reinvent themselves or make some progress but do you see a situation happening where those worlds end up just becoming clones of the real world? Yes, I do. I do worry about that. Um, as we touched on earlier, I mean, if you're somebody who is um, in a place or has a reason to make a new life in a virtual world um, and create a new identity and create a new you, I think that's wonderful. And we have a responsibility to build those virtual worlds, just as you say, so that they don't become uh, they don't they don't exhibit some of the bad outcomes that we do see in the real world in real economies where you know the the biggest the biggest problem that we have right now in the world, I think, and I mean, I think it's kind of vying with climate change, really. it's it's sort of up there with that in terms of its seriousness and its and the challenges of of addressing it is this wealth inequality problem. and And basically, you know, there's a ton of economists that are looking at this. Um, I've done a bunch of simulations and writing about it. Um, the basic problem is that there are a number of different conditions under which money piles up in the hands of the wealthy. Um, there are a lot of different ways this happens. It happens in YouTube ratings, you know, influencers, right? Because influencers are sorted by views, the rich get richer. And so the influencers become successful, even if they're not the best at what they do. That's a simple example of it. 
Another example is closed cycle economies, which have fixed money supplies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Those economies in which you are kind of giving away Bitcoins or Ethereum to a fortunate group of early adopters, numerical simulations of this um, will, will demonstrate that the wealth inequality that you start with will grow and grow and grow until you get to a very unequal distribution of wealth, which is very unhealthy and is the kind of moment in the real world that we have violent revolution. And we're already seeing that in a number of these uh, closed crypto economies where you can compute this thing called the Gini index, which is often used by economists to put a numerical measure on inequality. And what you already see is that these blockchains and you know some of these coins and some of these NFT markets and things like that already exhibit a tremendous level of wealth inequality. And that wealth inequality will only grow over time unless the systems are changed. Now, the same crypto systems can be built with rules that make them not exhibit that runaway inequality, but we have to get working on that and do it. Second Life might be a good place to test out some of those ideas, for example. Yeah. Man, Philip, I, I know you have a bunch of interviews probably lined up today and I want to respect <laughs> your time. So I don't want to ask you the million other philosophical questions that I want to pick your brain on. So we might have to do this again. But before we go, um, I do want to hear your thoughts about the future of this space and maybe anything that you just want to talk about and share that you're excited about. Well, I mean, we've had so much fun here. This is such a yeah. wide ranging. I, I can only say it's it's both stressful and also fascinating and interesting to get to wrangle with so many hard problems at the same time right now mm -hmm. in human history. And I don't mean just VR, obviously you're, you're in contact with and thinking about, you know, a very, very broad set of these things. Like we haven't even really talked about AI, right? Which is a whole nother yeah. wonderful thing. But um, I do think that there's an opportunity. Technology is neutral. You know, it can be used for good or evil. It is inherently neutral. I think that there is an opportunity if we're cautious and thoughtful to slowly build um, virtual worlds in a way that do respect the real world, keeps the real world safe and unharmed, um, does create a kind of a playground or an exploration for us, uh, you know, outside of the real world or in a digital world. But there are, are a number of moments or forks in that road that we're going to be faced with as a society where we're going to have to make I guess what I would describe as non-economic, you know, non-capitalist decisions that are all in our collective benefit. And those decisions are serious ones and we're going to be faced by them. We're going to be faced with a number of them, some of which we've talked about on this uh, call, you know, over the next, you know, five or 10 years. And we had, I plan to dedicate my own time and energy, both with Second Life and in other projects to trying to get the word out about that and trying to prototype and build things maybe in some cases and get people to make those right decisions so that we all get to be around in another 20 years talking about this stuff yeah a man after my own heart philip thank you so much man i really appreciate you taking the time today thank you for having me <laughs>